This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on acute medicine. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we are going to focus on important and recent updates to BMJ best practice in acute medicine, in pulmonary embolism and vaping-associated lung injury. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these problems, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castleton, section editor and GP, who works on BMJ best practice and BMJ learning. So Matt, let's start with pulmonary embolism. Have there been any recent changes to UK guidance on pulmonary embolism? Uh, Yes, at the end of March, NICE published their guidance on uh, venous thromboembolic disease, which of course includes pulmonary embolism. Uh, And this follows on from uh, European Society of Cardiology guidance on PE, which was published last year as well. And both of these uh, guidance documents have been um, incorporated into the, the new version of the BMJ Best Practice Pulmonary Embolism Topic, which uh, has been enhanced for more of a, a point-of-care perspective and includes uh, the new comorbidities tool. Can you tell us about really important elements of this year's new NICE guidance? So, yes, it's worth highlighting perhaps a couple of changes that are useful when there are presentations of of possible pulmonary embolism, particularly where there's a low clinical suspicion of pulmonary embolism being present. Firstly, NICE now say that clinicians can consider use of uh, something called the PERC rule, which stands for Pulmonary Embolism Rule-Out Criteria, um, which has been around for several years, but has now been reviewed by NICE. Um, Essentially, there's a serious series of criteria, um, uh, all of which have to apply for a clinician to be able to to rule out pulmonary embolism without any further investigation or assessment. And they are a person who is under 50 years of age with a heart rate of less than 100, oxygen saturations uh, in room air of over 95%, 95% or over, and then a series of negative criteria. So they haven't got unilateral leg swelling. They haven't got hemoptysis, haven't had recent surgery or trauma, no history of previous DVT or pulmonary embolism. And they're not using hormones, uh, for example, oral contraceptives. So all of those have to apply. And if that's the case, you can rule out PE with confidence. And But if any of those criteria apply, then they would need to be assessed further, starting with a two-stage well score for PE and uh, D-dimer blood testing as well. Okay, thank you. And tell us, what's the advantage of using the PERC rule and how might it change practice? Well, the big advantage is there's no need for a blood test with a well score. If people fall into the low-risk category, then the, the, the D-dimer blood test is required before you can be confident about ruling out PE. And um, the PERC rule, if it applies, there's no need for that blood test. So essentially, it could be used in settings where D-dimer testing is not 
readily available. There's no rapid turnaround on D-dimer testing. Uh, and in theory, this could include general practice settings. And indeed, NICE acknowledge that this is a possibility that the studies that evaluate the PERC rule all took place in emergency departments, but NICE state there's no reason why its use should be limited to emergency departments. They do say, however, that uh, only a limited population of patients presenting with possible pulmonary embolism would be suitable for applying the, the PERC rule. And there's a, a 15% figure where they say the clinicians have own judgments, uh, gestalt estimates of a, a likelihood of less than 15%. They should only apply the PERC rule to that population. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned D-dimer testing. Are, are there any changes in the new, new NICE guidelines on D-dimer? Yes, this is the other sort of area where diagnostic recommendations have, have, have changed significantly. So the new NICE guideline says clinicians can consider point-of-care testing now, but only if those point-of-care tests are fully quantitative. So you have a have a, a figure rather than a yes/no. Related to that, um, there's sort of again something that's been around for a while, but has been evaluated now as using age-adjusted D-dimers. So if you have a, a numerical figure um, that you can apply a cutoff to, then for people over 50, applying an age-adjusted D-dimer threshold, um, so sort of a higher threshold. Uh, means that you can confidently you know, rule out pulmonary embolism or venous thromboembolism more generally in people who'd have a higher than normal cutoff um, in that age group where we know the levels tend to be higher. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management of pulmonary embolism. Are there any important changes in the NICE guidance? Yes, there's um, been a move in recent years to the direct oral anticoagulant drugs, the, the neuro agents have been replacing warfarin um, in, in recent years. And as part of that, one thing that's worth picking out is a, a recommendation for uh, interim therapeutic anticoagulations for suspected DVT or, or PE, of course, which is what we're talking about. So that if people are identified as likely to have a PE through applying the Wales score, um, immediate imaging is recommended uh, and, and has been for some time. But if this can't take place for whatever reason, um, then using apixaban or rivaroxaban, which are two of these newer agents, is something that can that's recommended. And they don't need to be co-prescribed with a low molecular weight heparin. And if a pulmonary embolism is identified, they can be continued as the main sort of therapeutic coagulation. And, and those two agents are now, in fact, the preferred uh, anticoagulants replacing the sort of traditional combination of a low molecular weight heparin and then starting warfarin uh, and stopping the, the low molecular weight heparin when the warfarin is therapeutic. So obviously that's that's a big change that's been confirmed in the new NICE guidance. Okay, thank you. And you also mentioned European guidance on pulmonary embolism published last year. Are there important elements in this guidance that are worth highlighting for clinicians? Well, um, the, the NICE guideline we've been discussing sort of really follows on from that and uh, it has very similar themes. For example, uh, it also talks about the uh, adjusted age-adjusted D-dimer cutoffs 
and also something similar for clinical probability, um, adjusting D-dimer for clinical probability, and also the the new directorial uh, anticoagulants are our first line in that guidance as well. There's also an interesting change in the in the terminology around pulmonary embolism. So they've sort of come against using provoked versus unprovoked terminology, where you might say a, a pulmonary embolism is provoked if it's related to uh, cancer or surgery or immobilization. So there's a, an acquired risk factor that's triggering it. But the ESC guidance, they say, well, actually, it doesn't really help particularly categorizing it in this way. They say it's potentially misleading and not helpful for decision making regarding the duration of anticoagulation. But interestingly, NICE do continue to use this terminology. Okay, thanks, Matt. And one last important thing to mention about pulmonary embolism, which we said at the start, is that we've added a new tool to BMJ best practice, the comorbidity tool. And so this enables you to add one or more comorbidities to the treatment algorithm for pulmonary embolism. And so then you can find out how to manage somebody with pulmonary embolism and cardiac failure, or pulmonary embolism and COPD, or pulmonary embolism and heart failure and COPD. And the comorbidity tool covers other important conditions as well, like diabetes and hypertension and mental health conditions like depression and dementia. And very importantly, in the context of pulmonary embolism, chronic kidney disease. This is because patients with impairment of kidney function may have an increased risk of bleeding with certain certain anticoagulants. So, so you should check it for, for, for details on prescribing anticoagulants in patients with reduced kidney function. And there's a lot of detail in there, especially on low molecular weight heparins in patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, so that's pulmonary embolism. Let's move on to um, vaping associated lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, so, so, so Matt, tell us about changes to our t- topic on BMJ best practice on acute respiratory distress syndrome. Tell us about COVID related changes and non-COVID related changes to the topic. So yes, obviously it's a, a very um, topical area, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and the best practice topic was updated around the time that, that COVID-19 arrived in the UK and North America. So we do briefly mention COVID-19 there as a possible cause for um, acute respiratory distress, distress syndrome. But as you know, we, we do have two dedicated and regularly updated COVID-19 topics the COVID-19 topic itself and the coexisting morbidities topic, which looks at COVID-19 in relation to other conditions. Um, So most of our COVID-19 content is within those two topics. We do mention it briefly in the acute respiratory distress syndrome and the other non-COVID-19 new condition that that we now mention in that topic as well is vaping-associated lung injury, which was this... uh, phenomenon that emerged uh, particularly in the US in the summer of last year was an outbreak of very much an acute respiratory distress syndrome picture reported amongst young people um, mostly who'd been vaping and many of these 
people seem to have been using THC as the the ingredients, um, products that contain THC and vitamin E acetate, which I think was particularly a problem in North America. Okay, thank you. And and how do we diagnose this condition, vaping associated lung injury? Well, as we mentioned in the topic updates, the the syndrome um, is, is appears to be almost identical to acute respiratory distress syndrome. Clinical criteria for for defining that relate to seeing infiltrates on chest imaging, bilateral opacities on chest x-ray, and respiratory failure that's not fully explained by other causes, so by heart failure or fluid overload, for example. And then applying that to to e-cigarettes and vaping lung injury, the review we cite says that there obviously has to have been exposure to to vaping or e-cigarettes use within the previous 90 days. Okay, thank you. And and last question, management of vaping-associated lung injury. What, what do we say about that? Well, once again, um, it generally sort of follows the management of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Understand, again, from the review we cite that um, corticosteroids have been used in such patients and that it says that me- mechanical ventilation is needed in up to one third of these patients. So, so oxygen support, and then you know a third of uh, these patients who have been hospitalised in the US have needed ventilation. And essentially, it's then supportive care, giving the the lung function chance to recover in a similar way to how you would treat acute respiratory distress syndrome from other causes. Okay. Thank you very much, Matt, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other related diseases. Thank you once again.